I'm Madeline Jean Abel. Welcome to Window Dressing, Glamour Girl Next Door, MGM to Playboy. This week's episode is called The Women of Noir, aka Femme Fatales. Femme Fatales, generally speaking, are among the most compelling female characters on screen, outside of what we sexistly refer to as the melodramas, soaps, or weepies. The women of noir have a fully fleshed out set of desires, and usually a plan to achieve those ends. Nobody loves a bootstrap story more than an American. It fits right in with our preordained ideology on the subject of success and who has a right to it. The problem with noir is that it is treated as a man's medium about a man's world. Although this isn't always true and was never true for me as a female viewer, the film criticism about the genre is generally focused on the female character as relates to the male lead. What what role did she play in disabling him, making him suffer, tricking him, etc.? Is she an iteration of his fears, World War II, whatever? And yes, yes, probably. But I want to talk about the sudden light bulb of recognition these female characters seem to have about their lot in life that is so wildly compelling to witness, partly because the environment they are attempting to thrive is not that different from the current day. Open your eyes. This is still a man's world. Noir of the 1940s has a different taste to it than 50s noir or neo-noir of the 1970s and beyond. The perception is that women, while outwardly wicked, have the power. Although I have to point out that they actually don't have any power and are just attempting to have some semblance of a say in the outcome of their life. The rules women like Phyllis from Double Indemnity and Stella from Fallen Angel are playing by are set by men, capitalism, and America. The trap of the American dream, and quite honestly, the romance of it, ensnares unlucky men and women, always women especially ones who are unsatisfied with their lot in life and who, like the American dream promised, want to make a better life for themselves. But not being happy with wifedom to a dumb man in a small town is a sin worthy of death in the world of film noir. And quite honestly, just being a woman is dangerous enough in real life. We have ex-boyfriends who harass us, people in authority who pass us over, and strangers who rape and murder us. Sometimes it is the ex-boyfriend who does the raping and murdering. And it is these parallels of the plight of women in noir and real life that make it a satisfying genre to me. The Hayes Code ordained punishment of quote-unquote bad women feels in line with societal punishment. I'm going to focus on three movies this week. Fallen Angel, starring Linda Darnell, will be the first, which I wrote extensively about in my unpublished book, The Look of Things, which infuses memoir and film criticism. The second will be the 1952 Stanwyck noir, Clash by Night. And the third is a bit of a wild card, the 2013 film The Canyons, starring Lindsay Lohan and porn star James Dean, spelled D-E-E-N. In addition to spanning multiple decades, we have officially crossed the threshold into auteur films, meaning the time period where the director starts to be the most important element of any discussion around film. I do not ascribe to this belief and for the most part treat the director the same way I treat any other component of filmmaking. 
Now, in the cases of directors like Hitchcock and Fritz Lang, as we have this week with Lang's Clash by Night, it does matter. These directors obviously have an artistic signature that is worthy of discussion. The Canyons, too, has an auteur with a message. But for my purposes, I am much more concerned with Lindsay Lohan's communique than the director Paul Schrader's. Fallen Angel stars Linda Darnell as a pit stop diner waitress and small town slut named Stella. Stella is made complicit in a scheme to defraud proper lady June Mills, played by Alice Fay, by a con man and drifter named Eric Stanton, played by Dana Andrews. Eric finds himself in the small seaside town of Walton because he can't afford the full bus fare up to San Francisco. He meets and falls for Stella the night of his arrival at Pop's Diner, the local watering hole and place of Stella's employment. Eric finds he has competition for Stella's affection, including the local law, Mark Judd, played by Charles Bickford. Judd is a retired New York detective who came west for his health and has been making a play for Stella ever since, regardless of the fact that he is a married man. Stella, with her sights on a marriage of her own, casts Judd aside and goes out with Eric. Eric plans to fleece the local widow in order to finance his marriage to Stella, but that plan takes a turn when he marries his Mark to gain access to her safe deposit box. He makes the mistake of telling Stella that he has married June, essentially throwing the home and husband June gets, but Stella doesn't, in her face. Hurt and full of rage, Stella tells him to beat it. She doesn't mess around with married men. Stella winds up dead the night of June and Eric's honeymoon, murdered murdered by her stilted and married part-time lover and local lawman, Mark Judd. Judd heads up the investigation to solve Stella's murder. He sets his sights on Eric. He needs a patsy, and Eric is a good one. Eric, now cured of his love for Stella by the love of a good woman, June, fights for his freedom by nailing the murder on Judd. Eric goes home in victory with his wife, June, while Stella literally rots in the ground. Linda Darnell's performance in Fallen Angel as Stella stands as a testament to the powerhouse of a woman Darnell was. She suffered from severe alcoholism and died very young in a house fire of all things. Her character, Stella, is kicked around metaphorically and physically and ends up the quote-unquote poison pill that almost wrecks a decent woman's life. When I say poison pill, what I mean is the embodiment of all that is wrong, a scapegoat for men's suffering. This is the flip side of the good woman that I talked about last week. It is essentially a Madonna whore archetype, but more than the embodiment of those traits, it is more about the blame slash explanation for men's behaviors. The poison pill doesn't just tempt, she destroys men by simply existing. The good woman isn't just good. She heals, she heals the hearts of men through her understanding. It's really disgusting, especially when you realize how much of your life has been dictated by which one you are seen as in any given moment. Stella sees through this mess too and vehemently cites and objects to her mistreatment throughout the film. Costumed by Bonnie Cashin, Stella is elevated by her glamour and beauty. Cashin is known for designing for independent women and significantly impacted women's wear in the United States. She was ahead of her time in costuming 
costuming Darnell true to character, akin to Anne Roth's realism in Clute, which we will definitely get to and talk extensively about in the coming episodes. Cashin combines glamour with cheap frills, creating genuine wearability. Ultimately, Stella is the most memorable character in large part because she is supported by Cashin's designs. Linda makes her first appearance as Stella in a scene that begins with Eric entering into a roadside slash seaside diner to see three men discussing one woman, Stella. She has been missing for three days. The diner door opens and Stella waltzes into the room looking all in. She is wearing open-toed, high-heeled sandals with a slight platform at the toe. Her hair shines haphazardly under an oversized lace cartwheel hat. She wears a black pencil skirt with a pale-colored, tiered, ruffled jacket. The jacket is thin, low-cut, and cheap. The ruffles cut down her bust, revealing, revealing her black lace slip underneath. The effect of the look is trashy, but in the best way. She saunters to a table and tears off her shoes, clearly annoyed at all the male eyes on her. She scoffs at the attention, removes her hat, and begins to rub her own feet. At the end of the shot, we see Stella's legs, as if her eyeline has been lowered specifically for this purpose, emphasizing the objectification of Stella by every set of eyes in the room. Stella sits at her table while Mark, the detective, towers over her. He says, quote, I knew you would be back. She responds, so? Just like the group objectification, the intimidation tactic doesn't break her. But she doesn't seem comfortable, and the veneer of shame that is almost visible is thoroughly exploited in this scene. It feels akin to a bloodied deer being circled by predators. The next and final shot of this scene makes clear that Stella, while injured, is most certainly not going down without a fight. Pop comes over with Eric's hamburger and delivers it to Stella. She takes the hamburger and casually tears into it. Eric notices and comes to fill his coffee cup near Stella's table before leaving. Pop waves off Eric and the price of his coffee. Stella insists that he pay. He does, and the scene fades out. Okay, so Stella's insistence that Eric pay for the coffee, even after having his hamburger eaten out from under him, is an example of her attempt to hold the men in her life accountable, even in unfair or unjust circumstances. This attempt at accountability is a hallmark of 1940s noir. She consumes the meat in a way that suggests sexual appetite, but it is also a stolen hamburger. This combination sets her up to, at first glimpse to be the other woman type. Later in the film, Stella gets out of a strange man's car at night. Waiting in the shadows of her stairwell is Eric. Stella is wearing a little black dress with sheer netting around her decollete and rhinestone trim at her throat. A white trench coat with oversized pearl buttons and a popped collar drapes around her shoulders on the damp, cold night. Standing at the bottom of the stair landing, Eric tries to kiss Stella. She resists and retreats up the stairs. He grabs her by her left wrist, holding her in place, a few steps elevated above him. Eric says, marry me. Stella says, what with? We see a close-up of Eric's face as he makes his case. Then a close-up of Stella's face as she listens apprehensively to Eric's pitch. Stella says, I don't know you. Eric says, you know one thing, we are going to be married once I get the cash. The couple shakes on their deal, marriage. Once Eric has Stella's hand in his, he pulls her down to his level. She has literally been elevated above him before he brings her down to him. 
They kiss and the scene fades to black. The elevation awarded to Stella by the staircase creates a Romeo and Juliet almost courtly love feeling. He makes himself small for her, pitches himself to her, and makes a concrete financial promise, which visibly softens Stella's otherwise questioning demeanor. Stella's position is reinforced by the glamour of her outfit, hair, and makeup. She isn't broken down at all here. She is high above him. The kicker, of course, is the kiss. Once the deal is done, Eric uses the seal of that deal as a ploy to physically pull her down. This act perfectly illustrates what their involvement will bring, her death and another woman's humiliation. This scene shows what a femme fatale actually is, a woman who is pulled down by a man and made to be the physical embodiment of that man's failure. She is an acceptable receptacle for this failure because she is a slut. She is poison because she represents the truth of a man's failure and rarely stays quiet about it. Linda does all of this with one word, one look, and rhinestones at her throat. Eat it up. Barbara Stanwyck's character in Fritz Lang's 1952 film Clash by Night, Mae Doyle, is 10 years Stella's senior and well-worn with world weariness. Mae, like Darnell, wanted out. Mae did make it out, for a time, but ended up back in the small fishing town of Monterey where she fled 10 years prior, with, no, with little to no prospects and zero energy left to fight. Mae refers to home as, quote, the place you come when you run out of places. She is greeted by her brother, Joe, played by Keith Andes, and Joe's girlfriend, Peggy, played by Marilyn Monroe, in one of her first film roles. Joe lays into May about being a fancy failure, and May says straightly that she did fail. The man she loved was married, and when he died, his family contested his will. Basically, as the other woman, she was left to fend for herself in a world that condones the use and abuse of women like throwaway lollipops. But I digress. May meets Jerry D'Amato, played by Paul Douglas, a friend of her brother's who works on the fishing boats with him. Jerry is dumb but sweet. That is, if you think literally looking the other way and not being able to comprehend things is a nice quality. May ends up marrying the big lug, thinking he will be able to keep her safe, and like Stella, she wants a home. Jerry has a boy-like obsession with his idiot best friend named Earl Pfeiffer, played by Robert Ryan. Jerry insists on bringing him around, and often. May sees through Earl, but given that Earl insists he sees through May, a tryst begins. It turns into a masochistic love affair that ends in nice guy Jerry trying to rape his wife as she is leaving him for Earl. When May first comes to town, she's dressed in, a, in big city garb, posing as a lady. White gloves and a sad little white scarf accompanying her morning shot of whiskey and cigarette on her first day in town. By the time May goes out with Jerry, she is wearing a sweater set that is doing its best to make her look like she's at peace with her lot in life. When she is first introduced to Jerry, I'm sorry, when she is first introduced to Earl by Jerry at the local movie theater where Jerry works as a projectionist, May walks into the small space and sits politely in her sweater set and listens to Earl thrash out woman-hating conversation. It is clear she is attracted to Earl. He is handsome. He looks at her like a piece of meat, and even in her costume of placating knits, Earl treats her like a wild animal. He makes some stupid small talk about how she could be in show business and how his wife is in burlesque, but basically she is a whore. My words, not his. But believe me, his are equally distasteful throughout the film, like in this next exchange. 
Earl inquires if May liked the picture. May says that, quote, she was beautiful, referring to the actress in the film. Earl responds, quote, what, that celluloid princess? Sometimes I just want to cut her up and make her more interesting. Okay, full stop. This is one of the things that happens in 1950s noir. It isn't just the odd corrupt cop or an underbelly of slut shaming. It is out and out stating that women would be fun to cut up. This sentiment reminds me of that Leonard Cohen song where he requests that she break her beauty down like she would do for someone she loves. <laughs> it is a request to relinquish the feminine power in service of the broken male ego. And it is a through line even now incels come to mind. And by the way, I love Leonard Cohen, just so nobody gets mad at me. Okay. But Earl isn't supposed to be anything other than what he is, a woman-hating violent man. The problem is that May's only alternative is Jerry, who not only allows Earl to say that kind of thing without consequence, but actually admires it and thinks Earl is smart. Jerry isn't good. He is just simple, which is what is being offered to May as her best choice. The fact that May is world-weary and wanting more, and the fact that she made her shot and failed leaves her in a very vulnerable position, but one that knowing better gets her nowhere. The next scene I find deeply compelling is when May gives a kind of oratory to her brother's girlfriend, Peggy. Peggy, played by Marilyn Monroe, is emblematic of innocence, youth, and beauty, a version of May before life showed her what the score was. Peggy comes out of the house wearing one of May's party dresses. She spins wildly, bubbling with joy. May is hanging up the washing on the line, which seems to contain a lot of gingham, the fabric of the simple life. In conversation, Peggy says that, quote, all Earl needs is someone to take care of him. May says, quote, I'm tired of looking after men. I want to be looked after. Peggy's response is to ask May if she has ever been in love before. Annoyed at her naivety and misunderstanding, May says, now at a fever pitch, quote, confidence. I want a man to give me confidence, somebody to fight off the blizzards and the floods, somebody to beat off the world when it tries to swallow you whole. This speech of May's is said with such conviction from a woman who clearly is sick to death of what has been allotted to her. Her rage is touching even now in 2023 because her statements ring true. I'm tired too, tired of taking care of men who never do anything substantive to support me, being brushed off and disregarded by those I loved or idolized, per the deal as my role as lowly woman. Later, we will see how Tara, Lindsay Lohan's character in the 2013 film, The Canyons, is equally exhausted. But first, spousal rape, or as normal people call it, just rape. In one of the later scenes of the film, May is going to leave Jerry for Earl. Why would May leave good guy Jerry for woman-hating Earl? Her reasoning makes sense to me, but I'm having a really hard time articulating why she would do this other than to present this next scene as evidence. May, dressed in a tied-at-the-navel blouse and a daytime, fun-looking polka-dot skirt, sits down at, a, at the table. Earl begins to beg May to come back, espousing his ability to forgive. Blah, blah, blah. May, the only one capable of carrying the weight of reality, says it is no good and she is leaving tonight with Earl and has come to change. She gets up as he pulls her back. She goes into the bedroom and shuts the door behind her. After a beat, Jerry goes into the bedroom. May is sitting at her vanity, half-dressed, wearing a slip and a skirt. Jerry starts saying he is going to sell his fishing boat so they can go away together. 
May has her head down listening to the desperation in Jerry's voice. When she looks up, there are tears in her eyes. But May immediately sees what is in Jerry's eyes, and it is lust for his half-dressed whore of a wife, May. She gets up and crosses the room to grab a blouse. Jerry grabs her with both his arms and says, May, May, don't you understand that I love you? May struggles against his grip and screams, let go of me, you're hurting me. When she breaks free, he says, you're my wife. There's the kicker, the undercurrent, or maybe just the current, being, you're my property, my piece of ass, my punching bag, and of course, let's not forget my caretaker. He then says, quote, I have as much right to make love to my wife as any man alive, unquote. These words come out in a growl as he struggles with May, tearing at her clothes and pinning her up against a wall. May screams, let go of me or I will smash your face in with the first thing I lay my hands on. Apparently, spousal rape is unacceptable to May, but this is used as further evidence of her unfitness as a woman. Jerry backs off and responds, quote, you're no good, you're rotten. May says, quote, I know, Jerry, I know that. This is the saddest line. She was fully convinced by the end of the film that she ended up with Earl because as Earl said himself, you're like me. May isn't like Earl. She is a woman, so she is only allowed to be the reflection of the man she chooses. If she can't be that because she has her own light to emit and her choices of men are black holes, then she better take what she can get and like it. This film is heartbreaking. She actually ends up back with Jerry because of the child, and we get a quote-unquote happy or at least a cohesive family ending. I hope Jerry is torn apart by the engine of a fishing trawler and takes Earl with him. The last film I'm going to talk about this week is The Canyon, starring Lindsay Lohan. I referred to it in the opening as The Wild Card, but I don't actually think it is. The 2013 film is directed by Paul Schrader and is notorious for casting a porn star in the role opposite Lohan. James Double E. Dean, the porn star, was part of Schrader's message about the dissolution of film and the rise of tech, especially via the porn industry. This is a captivating cause, especially with the porn star casting and neo-noir visuals, but as a viewer, I find this film deeply connected to Lindsay Lohan herself. The quote-unquote chewed up and spit out story that so many stars experience in real life, coupled with the kind of lack of reverence for the star made bear literally here, isn't just compelling, it is a tale born in Hollywood. Lindsay Lohan plays Tara, a failed actress-turned-kept woman of psychotic trust fund kid Christian, played by James Dean, double E. Christian is funding a low-budget thrasher starring Ryan, played by Nolan Gerard Funk. He is the pretty boy boyfriend of Christian's assistant, Gina, played by Amanda Brooks. Tara is having an affair with Ryan, whom she helped get cast. Their affair is the result of a previous relationship, which she left because they were broke. Christian routinely cheats on Tara with Eastside yoga teacher Cynthia, played by Tennille Houston. Cynthia's character is such a great touch to this film because she's technically the other woman, but plays against type by being the least interesting woman in the room. Eventually, Cynthia is brutally murdered by Christian and Tara gets out of the sexually permissive relationship by offering him an alibi. The film is filled with group sex, which is one of Christian's requirements for his girlfriends, and other garishly drawn depictions of what having a trust fund looks like. The heart of this film is Lohan. The film opens with the sequence of valley and city theaters in various states of disrepair, 
all closed and all beautiful. This is part of the case for the literal crumbling of a once great industry. This opening is moving and scary, 1980s neo-noir with so much 1970s styling from the score to the font. We then move to the famed Chateau Marmont for dinner. Tara sits next to Christian across from Ryan and Gina in the middle of the room. Lohan looks at ease because she likely is, given she lived at the chateau for many years. I think the personal details of her life at that time matter to this movie. The experience of watching it cannot be divorced from her public image. Lindsay is wearing a black crop top turtleneck with, a sh with sheer high-waisted wide leg pants. I would say straight out of the 70s, but in reality, her entire wardrobe was designed by the now defunct American Apparel, the Los Angeles-based clothing company that embodied exploitive advertisement and accessible cool in California at that time. Gina, Christian's assistant, and Ryan's new girlfriend looks like she walked straight out of the hills, the OC spinoff show set. Her hair is tucked at the nape of her neck, pulled back on only one side, leaving the other loose, indicating a failed attempt at a Veronica Lake-esque hairstyle. She is smiley with a no-nonsense vibe that you know is all nonsense. The dinner consists of Christian publicly discussing the group sex he has with Tara with the aid of the internet for procurement of young couples. It's humiliating, but everyone acts like it isn't. The next scene is the couple Tara and Christian returning to Christian's Malibu Canyon home to have anonymous sex with a stranger. It bothers me that they drove all the way to the Chateau in West Hollywood from Malibu for dinner, but I'm trying not to mention it. Let's hope they went from Canyon to Canyon via the 101 versus taking the 1 to the 10 and coming through the city. Tara readies herself in a black high-waisted underwear set that she covers with a pale peach robe with braided edging, all from American Apparel and available for purchase at this time so you too can be tossed out and made to feel trapped in style. This robe is important because the color and the fabric of faux silk poly blend, which reads as chiffon on screen, is reflective of classic Hollywood glamour. It is indicative of quote unquote star power or the it factor that Lindsay still has and by extension lends to her character Tara. The glamour, as I have said before, cannot be faked and it cannot be taken. She owns that shit. It is Christian's express purpose to see it broken down and damaged as the movie theaters of the opening sequence are. I'm not necessarily saying that Dean's character is aware of these motivations, but I think they are plain as day. Tara walks into the kitchen while Christian snorts a line of cocaine off the kitchen island countertop. He asks her if she has ever met Ryan before tonight. She responds, no. The tone, intonation, and body language of her response are perfect. There are many moments in the film when you can see Lindsay act, or the dialogue feels strained to begin with, and it feels disconnected from the film and the story. Then there are moments like this one that feel like the truest way I have ever heard a lie. Christian's ongoing affair with Eastside yoga bitch Cynthia seems like a pathetically sad distance to drive for a woman wearing the ugliest green robe I have ever seen, living in the ugliest craftsman house I have ever seen. Cynthia answers the door to psychopath fling Christian, wearing said robe, the color green, cut short, style ugly of that robe when compared to Tara's pale peach one is indicative of Cynthia's character. She is earthy, simple, good for sex and exercise, but not compelling in any real way, not a star, and certainly not it. 
The two make strained love, with Christian violently preventing her from kissing him during the course of it. They stop short so he can whine to her about his fears that Tara is cheating and being distant. It is an all-too-familiar scene of expected use and abuse by a wealthy man and a struggling yoga teacher. Ugly green robe aside, you feel for the girl and the dead end that is this interaction. Much later in the film, Christian discovers through Cynthia, as orchestrated by Ryan, that Tara is in fact cheating on him with Ryan. After a night of group sex, Tara walks to wakes to discover her cell phone is missing. She walks over to the landline wearing a plain white slip, similar to Stanwick's in the attempted rape scene in Clash by Night, and she uses the landline to call her cell and discovers that it is it is in the Art Deco bedside table. As soon as she reaches for it, Christian, who is still sleeping in bed, wakes and grabs her by the arm. In an instant, he is up and screaming in her face as she cowers on the floor. He says, quote, I know about you and Ryan, you lying bitch, unquote. He violently drags her up by the arm. She is terrified and in instant tears. He then pushes her back down and says, quote, I'm going to beat the shit out of you. He pushes her back and it looks like she hits her head on the corner of the bedside table. It looks real. She says, quote, oh shit. She cries and the scene ends with her screaming, Jesus, with her hand to her face. It all looks very fucking real. I'm almost positive that she was injured in the filming of the scene. I scoured the internet for anything about it. What I found made me stop looking immediately. Article after article making fun of Lindsay, exploiting her addictions, trashing her body, and recounting her tragedies as an explanation for this movie's failure. It is really disgusting. If anyone knows anything about the filming of this scene, please reach out to me via the podcast's Instagram page at Window Dressing Podcast. I am the same age as Lindsay Lohan, and while she was making this movie, I was in rehab. I recall reading an article in a fashion magazine from that rehab where she was quoted as saying something like she couldn't be alone. I remember really resonating with that statement at that time. As a woman who was made to feel broken, worthless, and scared, I honestly think we have made a femme fatale out of a wounded woman. Which I guess is the point. Women who are villainized are almost never the villain, but the victim of men whose use and abuse reaches a fever pitch that animates the woman into action. Like Stanwyck's scene in Clash by Night, where she screams that she will hurt him if he lays a hand on her and then is called, quote, no good and rotten by the man who is attempting to rape her. Or when Linda Darnell insists on marriage and ends up the unwed other woman and a dead one to boot. Or when Lindsay Lohan is called a lying bitch and is too beaten down to respond except to say, Jesus. And we all call her fat and blame her for the failed film and by extension, the dissolution of Hollywood. If it isn't obvious to you by now that I am a Lindsay Lohan fan, I don't know what else to say except for I am a Lindsay Lohan fan. I understand that she has said and done things that are problematic. But I really think, given her com her current comeback, that it is time to reconsider the way we all treated her 10 years ago, and whether or not you would have survived emotionally what she survived. At the very least, I would ask that you take her role in the canyons as a serious addition to the noir canon and show her and women like her real and fictionalized the respect they deserve. Next time. On window dressing, Glamour Girl Next Door, MGM to Playboy, I will be discussing the advent of Playboy, the dumb blonde and the move towards the quote-unquote girl next door archetype. 
I haven't chosen my films yet, so stay tuned to see how this episode shapes up. Also, look out for a bonus episode where I will have a guest come on to discuss the Canyons and Lindsay Lohan in general. I'm hoping to release this on Lindsay Lohan's birthday, which is Sunday, July 2nd. Stay tuned to the podcast Instagram page, Window Dressing Podcast, for news about that. And please like, subscribe, and review this podcast. It really helps. Okay, I'm Madeline Jane Auble. I'll see you next week. Bye.